Okay, before Marlon reads the Luke passage, I need to give you all an assignment. Beginning in college and continuing most of my life, I have been fairly involved in drama, acting, writing, directing, producing. Some of you may remember that Phyllis and I operated a summer theater east of Lancaster for 10 years, 40 shows a summer. So this morning, we're going to have what we call open auditions. Now, closed auditions is when only actors who are invited may audition. But open auditions means that everyone can try out. So this morning, all of you will be trying out for one of the parts in this dramatic story. But here's the important part. You will be chosen not so much for your acting talent, although I'm sure all of you are outstanding, really. But rather, selections will be made on how well you understand the part you want to play. As you will learn, in case you've never heard this story before, there are ten characters. It sounds like most of them are male, but I like to cast half of the roles as female this morning. So as you listen, try to decide which character you could probably portray the best because you understand that person the best. You'll find the uh, ten roles we need to cast in your bulletin below the, uh, the sermon title. And you may want to keep that list handy as you listen to the story. Which role should you try out for because you understand it the best? Marlon? Defining neighbor. Just then, a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? He answered, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said that you love the Lord your God with all your passion, prayer, and muscle, and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There once was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took off his clothes beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road. But when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite, a religious man, showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on. When he saw the man's condition... His heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him upon his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill and I'll pay you back when I come through here again. 
What do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by the robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the religion scholar responded. Jesus said, go and do the same. Great story, right? It's been uh, sticking there in our mind for several centuries because of the paradox and the questions it raises. Let me say uh, right off the top that I'm going to be casting Mim Book as Jesus, so you don't have to worry about that anymore. I know she'll do a great job. Uh, So that, that leaves nine roles for the rest of you, and I need everyone to try out. That includes Gary Yoder, and Rhoda Shirk, and Sue Barley, and Clayton Charles. Everyone. Everyone needs to try out. So please don't drop out. Keep thinking about which character you understand the best. Let's start with the esteemed scholar. Jesus, as far as we know, didn't even have a master's degree, let alone a PhD. So it was an unfair fight from the beginning. The law professor knew so much more than this populist roving the countryside. In any case, doctor, I know more than you do, asks Jesus a question he knew knew was foxy. What do I need to do to get eternal life? Is this the role for you? Are you good at holding your cards close to your vest while embarrassing others with your tricky questions? Do you look down your nose at persons you think have less education than you do? If so, I urge you to audition for the role of the law professor. Oh, sorry, the distinguished law professor. So, teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Poor Jesus, probably not realizing he was outclassed, replied, What is your reading of God's law? Dr. Smarty Pants couldn't believe the slow pitch. He took his best swing with a bit of a smirk and a flourish. Love the Lord your God with all of your passion and quintessence and all of your muscularity and intellectual acuity. Good, good, Jesus said. Great, great choice of words. The professor looked pleased. After all, words were the currency of his trade. And then the professor added quickly, oh, and of course, you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. The crowd could see dancing in the eyes of Jesus, partly because he was debating whether he should ask the obvious question, which would have been, and how much do you love yourself, Dr. Professor? Love your neighbor as yourself raises the pesky question, how much do I love myself? or don't love myself. Not a problem for the confident professor because he appeared to love himself plenty. The word adore comes to mind. But is that what the commandment means? Are we to adore ourselves? Are we to love ourselves more than others? Jesus knew many in the crowd struggled to believe in themselves. Many doubted that they could handle the future. Many longed for a better life for their children. Some didn't even know if there was enough food and water for the next 24 hours. How can one love oneself in such a world? 
How can I understand how to cherish my neighbor if I have no esteem for myself? But Jesus had mercy on the scholar of the law. Good answer, he said. Do it yourself and you shall live. End of story. But the professor couldn't let it go. Not to quibble with your exegesis, he said. But could you explain your definition of neighbor? Then Jesus turned his attention to the teeming crowd and told them a story. But before we move on, if you feel you understand the distinguished professor, you should audition for that role. I'm serious. It doesn't mean you're maybe as arrogant as he is, just that you understand someone like him. If you think you can deliver his lines with conviction, then please try out for that part. Now let's focus on the unfortunate female traveler journeying alone from slack water to safe harbor. No, sorry, from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It was known as a rough, treacherous path, dropping nearly 3,000 feet in elevation in just 17 miles. In fact, bandits and robbers ambushed and attacked travelers so often on this strip of road that it was known as the Bloody Pass. Could you portray the middle-aged, the middle-class female traveler? Are you an insider expecting safe travels to safe harbor? Are you feeling vulnerable because you have a lot to lose? Are you part of the religious majority, at least in your protected area? What could go wrong? Why worry? There's good news and bad news if you decide to play this role. Unfortunately, you're going to end up bloody and half-naked, discreetly, of course. But on the other hand, the audience will be sympathetic to you because you're the victim in this story. So there's good news and bad news here. From safe insider to bloody and half-naked along a public road. Is this a role for you? Let's call the young woman Sarah. Playing this part will take courage and may be humiliating, but you'll have the audience's sympathy. Now we have the three thieves to cast, two male and one female. Are they truly needy, maybe starving? Or are they shrewd and deceitful and violent, preying on anyone they can find? Or are they mainly slackers from slackwater? Can you identify? Probably not. But think about it. If you have a skill for stealing dignity from other people, for persuading insiders to part with their possessions, for drawing blood, if necessary, to achieve your goal, if you understand these skills, then I'd urge you to, to consider auditioning to play one of the thieves in this drama. What we're after here, let's remember, is authenticity. Which brings us to the pastor. Now, a lot of people through the centuries have really beat up on this character as they retell the story. But if you understand what it's like to grow weary of doing good, of having such high expectations on your shoulders, 
of being exhausted by all the grief and contention and bitterness in your flock, maybe, maybe this is the role for you. His off-duty, apparently, on his way home, going down from Jerusalem, not up to Jerusalem. Hey, who's to say it isn't a trap? These bandits hide in caves along the way and could easily be posing as a beaten-up victim just to lure the pastor in and attack and rob him. Besides, if that young woman is dead, you're forbidden by law against touching the dead. Let's just get on home. Is this the role for you? The part of the female church admin, while similar, doesn't feel as weighted down. You're doing your job. You're not clueless or callous. You're just minding your own business. You know you can't let every distraction or supposed need keep you from going to that much-anticipated party, can you? If you aren't careful, you end up as exhausted as the pastor. you got to live a little. Maybe this is your role. Or maybe you prefer to try out for the bed and breakfast owner. Many of you here this morning can handle this part very well. You know the job. Run a reliable business, work hard, be discreet and honest, do everything you can for your guests within reason. Smart part, give it a try. Now before we go on, I need to ask you each a question. Um, I wish I could get you to be honest with me and with yourself. Who are you glad that you are not? I think there's a little space there in your bulletin where you could write your answer. Don't worry, you won't have to read it out loud to anyone. And if you don't have anything to write with, I just say, use your finger as an imagination, imaginary script. Try to think of your answer. Who are you thankful that you are not? Which brings us to the tenth character in our drama, a middle-aged woman who was part of a hated group traveling this treacherous road on her donkey. Let's call her Rebecca. History tells us that the Samaritans hated the Jews as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans. They had for generations. Think Northern Ireland in recent years. The way the Protestants and the Catholics, whose faith principles and tenets were really quite similar, hated and demonized each other for generations, often killing each other. The Samaritans, were told, believed that their worship was the true religion of the ancient Israelites, that before the Babylonian captivity, this faith was preserved from before the Babylonian captivity by those who stayed in the land of Israel, as opposed to Judaism, which the Samaritans saw as a related but altered and amended version of the true faith. We've heard the stories about those who stayed and those who left and their conflicts. 
This amended faith was brought back by those returning from the Babylonian exile with its assimilating influences and compromises. Be that as it may, the fact remained that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Jesus knew this as well as anyone, so his speaking to a crowd of Jews, including the distinguished Jewish professor. The first two down the road in Jesus' story passed by the battered and bloody young woman. They were a Jewish leader and a Jewish worker. Neither stopped to help poor Sarah. But Jesus had the guts to tell this Jewish crowd that it was Rebecca, the despised outcast, who did six things. Rebecca saw Sarah. She paid attention. She didn't look away. Rebecca's heart went out to Sarah in her bloody, half-naked condition. Rebecca got down and went to Sarah and gave her first aid, disinfecting and bandaging Sarah's wounds. You have to wonder, how much did Rebecca glance around while this was going on? If one of her own people saw her helping the sworn enemy, would she be ostracized and condemned by her fellow Samaritans? Rebecca then lifted Sarah up, up onto her donkey. She wasn't normally that strong, being in her late 40s, but somehow she managed. And Rebecca led her donkey with Sarah on it to a B&B down the road, got a room, and made Sarah comfortable. The next morning, Rebecca took out two days' wages in coins, paid for 10 days' stay for Sarah so she could recuperate. And Rebecca told the B&B owner, take good care of Sarah, and if it takes longer for her to heal, I'll stop by and pay the difference. As Jesus ended his story, he turned to the distinguished professor. Which of the three who traveled past poor Sarah was a neighbor to her? The professor's voice was so low that many in the crowd could not hear his answer. The one who treated her kindly, he murmured. Jesus smiled. Go and do the same. So more than 2,000 years after the story was told, why are we still talking about it? What does it mean? Often we focus on how we should be willing to help others, everyone and anyone, not just members of our own social or religious group. And that's a good reminder. Let me ask, are there people you're not willing to help? Do you know why you feel that way? But I must say during the past few weeks as I thought about this story, I've been thinking that maybe we have it upside down. This story may not be about us helping the despised outcasts in our lives. Why? Because the hated outcast, Rebecca, gave help. She didn't receive help. Perhaps the question Jesus was asking is more like, who is the last person you would be willing to accept help from? if you're feeling beaten up and abandoned. Perhaps the story is not about giving help, 
Maybe it's about being willing to receive help. Part of the Mennonite DNA is to help others, all kinds of persons, even the despised and outcasts, even before we have breakfast. Menno on the spot. But another part of the Mennonite DNA is to resist help from others, to say, no, 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 I'm fine. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not among the needy. You can help the others. If accepting help from another person makes him or her my neighbor, then I want to be very selective about who helps me, right? If an undesirable helps me when I have a need, must I then accept that person as part of my neighborhood? This obviously applies to race and class and gender, right? And to socioeconomic status and to personality and educational levels and sophistication in general, right? So if I permit a Latino to help me, must I change my music and food habits? If I permit an Arab to help me, can I ever be relaxed again? If I permit Mennonites who are more conservative than I I am to help me, can I swallow my pride and honor their convictions? If I accept help from a man in a MAGA hat, make America great again hat, will I have to pay attention to the slights and grievances he feels? So the story might be more about Sarah left for dead in the ditch than it is about Rebecca who saved her life. What if Sarah had refused to let Rebecca help her? Sarah had been taught that Rebecca was unclean and that her theology was wrong. Are we ready for open auditions when it comes to which people may live in our neighborhood? Or when deciding who we are willing to help, accept help from when we are in need? Don't worry. I have a solution. Avoid being in need. Don't be vulnerable. Be strong. Avoid financial needs or health needs or emotional vulnerabilities or faith weaknesses. Avoid all of that, I say, and never even admit to it. Be self-sufficient, because if you honestly ask for help or accept help, you're obligating yourself, and there goes the neighborhood. So be strong. Help others if you can, but don't accept help from others. Now wait, is that what Jesus was saying? 